Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would be here as our teacher, that you would help us to understand what's true by your Holy Spirit. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 29. My wife brought my Bible. Actually, she brought her Bible, but it's the one that I'm using. John chapter 1 and verse 29. It is becoming one of my very favorite passages. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. We're talking this period about the sin of the world, and before we get into the sin of the world, I just want to start with this gospel truth. What does Jesus do? He takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we find however bad or thorough the sin of the world is, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus takes it away. I'm very happy for that. When I gave the introduction to this series this morning, right after the Mano talk, we addressed Romans 7. Turn there with me for a minute. Romans chapter 7. We talked about the idea that sin is not known intuitively. Romans chapter 7, and we're looking for I had not known... Which verse is it? For I had not known sin, except the law had sinned, so thou shalt not, not known lust. I'm going to quote it to you while I find it. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Verse 7, almost between the pages. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. This verse is so helpful to me, because when I think it through, I would not have known that lusting was wicked if it wasn't for this verse. And Paul would not have known that lusting was wicked if it wasn't for the Tenth Commandment. In other words, what Paul says in Romans 7, 7, is that sin is not something that is identified by my intuition. I can't just know what sin is. This is where John Bunyan went off. John Bunyan, you like him. He wrote the book called, that's right. And he also wrote another beautiful book called The Holy War about the town of Mansoul. John Bunyan was a Christian man. But did you know he wrote a book about the Seventh-day Sabbath? He wrote a book entirely about the Seventh-day Sabbath. And that book is against the Seventh-day Sabbath. It is to prove that the Seventh-day Sabbath is not obligatory for Christians today. And here is John Bunyan's primary line of argument against the Seventh-day Sabbath. It's that when a man is born again, that man has the law of God written in his heart. Can you say amen to John Bunyan so far? And when a man is born again, he knows he shouldn't kill He shouldn't steal, he shouldn't commit adultery, but he doesn't know anything about the seventh-day 
Sabbath. And so that must not be part of the law of God that is written in the heart. That's, that's John Bunyan's argument. And my response would be Romans 7, 7. That is, the sin is not known intuitively. We have to go to the law to find it. And if you would go to the law, there you would find that the Sabbath is obligatory for Christians today. And if John Bunyan was here, I'd take him a step further and say, John, the law is written incrementally. That is, each, each aspect of the law is written in your heart as you submit to it. So God brings you up, step higher and higher. You are an epistle. That it's not like that God was done writing you the day that you gave your life to him. You are under construction. You are his husbandry. That is, you are his orchard or his garden. You are his building. So that's one thought. The law is not known, in, excuse me, sin is not known intuitively. The other thought doesn't need any proving because it's too much common sense. But that is that our theological errors are not perceived intuitively. It's hard to even say this because it's so obvious that it doesn't make a good sentence. But if you think something wrongly, you're not going to realize it's wrong just by thinking about it. All right. That's why we need the Bible. The Bible is how we find out our errors. You're welcome to come in, but you don't have to. Okay. Bye-bye. So the effect of sin, have you read this in Hebrews? It talks about the deceitfulness of sin, that we, in fact, ought to exhort one another daily, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If you turn that sentence around, you find that sin is deceitful. That is, the effect of sin is it leads me into error. I hope you haven't lived long enough to, or haven't observed this in your life, but um, when you meet someone who has a theological aberration, what's an aberration? Uh, like they, when it comes to theology, there's something wrong with how they think. When you meet someone like that, if you know them long enough, my experience is eventually something crops up that there's a sin in their life. There's a connection there. That sin is deceitful. And when you have a sin in your life, you end up in some foolish or false way. Yeah, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The converse of that is also true and is also easy to follow. And that is that a man who has a misunderstanding of what is true, to whatever extent he misunderstands truth, to just that extent, it's easy for the devil to lead him into sin. So enter Adam and Eve. Eve has a misunderstanding about what is true. That is, that she believes Satan's lie about God. And what does that do when she believes a lie? It sets her up to disobey. I'm glad it's good music that they play in the cafeteria. I'm glad. Let me review these thoughts and then we'll move forward. One thought, we find sin by revelation, and that keeps us from going into theological error. Another thought is that we find theological error by revelation, 
and that helps keep us from going into sin or even can lead us out of sin. These are the two ideas. So of our six-part series here, the first three parts we're going to spend talking about sin. Pray tell, why would we talk about sin? Remember our very first verse. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But the sin that Jesus takes away from me is the sin that I recognize. And until I recognize the sin, he's not going to take it away. So that by talking about what sin, by recognizing the sins in our life, we open the way for Jesus to take them away. That's the first three lessons. The last three lessons are of my effort to fulfill what Ellen White says in the book Education, where she says we should not teach young people to be mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. We should, in fact, teach them how to think. But I find many young people and elder people alike so misunderstand thinking that when they make their own opinion, they feel like they've been thinking for themselves. And I just want to preface those last three lectures by saying that making an opinion is far different than thinking, so much so that you could make an opinion without thinking. And uh, learning and thinking is not the same thing as thinking well. If I said I want to teach you how to cook, I don't mean I want to teach you to cook. Did that make sense what I just said? That is, you, I could teach you to cook without teaching you how to do it, and you might just be making mashed potatoes every single meal. Now you know to cook, but you don't know how. If I just teach you to think for yourself, that really isn't what education is talking about. It's, of course you think for yourself, but not everyone. Some people just do whatever someone tells them or whatever they hear. Some people don't think for themselves at all. But there are many people who think for themselves, but they don't think well, and so they end up in delusion. And delusion leads to sin. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 20. We could start in verse 19. James 5, 19. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him. Have you ever thought about verse 19? When we think about converting people, at least I, when I think about converting people, I would think about converting them from sin to righteousness. And that's valid. We want people to be converted from sin to righteousness. But what is it in verse 19? What are they being converted from? It's from error to truth. And I'm telling you there's a connection between these two ideas, error to truth and between sin and righteousness. Verse 20, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his, what does it say? way. That's the idea. There is an error of a way. That is, if you err from the truth, it's going to put you in the wrong way, and if you go the wrong way, you're going to sin. So if you convert someone from error to truth, you're converting him from the error of his way. And what are you doing? You will save a soul from death, and hide a multitude of sin. 
And then look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, a verse that we've already spoken of this morning. Goodbye, Jessica. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see that in the last few words of that verse, the connection between sin and error? That sin is deceitful, it leads us. And here's the exhortation that's in the passage. If there's something I'd like you to do for me today, it would be to exhort me to live rightly and to do well. You could, for example, say to me, be faithful. Uh, you could encourage me to, be, to exercise self-control or to speak in a way that well represents the Lord Jesus. You can exhort people, and how, how often should you exhort people according to the verse? This should be our regular activity. Yeah, regular activity, exhorting. Why, according to the verse, should I daily be exhorting, should we be exhorting each other to live well? Why should we do it? Do you know this? That there is a current in this world. The current is pushing the wrong way. That current is a sinful current. And the sinful current is pushing you in such a way that you will be hardened. You will end up having less clear ideas of truth tomorrow than you had today unless something is holding you up or keeping you steady or moving you in the right direction. And so a great activity for us would be to exhort each other daily. Amen. I think I've just well enough established those first points. Really one whole point, that error and truth have so much, I mean, error and sin have so much to do with each other. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. You have a question? All right. That is above average common sense, brother. Above average. I appreciate it. John 4 and verse 42. <laughs> the people speaking in this verse are uh, the ones that were converted by the woman at the well. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Messiah. Sometimes when I come to the word Christ in the Bible, I just say Messiah. You know why I do that? Because the word Christ means Messiah, and sometimes because of the way we use it, it sort of ended up being like a name in my head. I use it kind of like a name. So by saying Messiah instead, it reminds me of the meaning of the word. We know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We talked about John 1.29, where John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now we have men and women who have heard Jesus for themselves and they know that he is the savior of the world. I want to think of Jesus this way. I want to think of him as someone who, though he knows the world, 
He knows what is in man. Have you read that in the New Testament, that he knows what is in man? He knows who's going to betray him. And even though he knows this world very thoroughly, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He came to take away its sins. How about I just hold on to this, and then I want to go back. John 6, verse 51 Jesus is speaking. We've heard John. We've heard those persons of Samaria. Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This thought has impressed me deeply when I've thought about it. I'll illustrate it with the tree of life. The tree of life, I think, is the reason why we are going to meet together from new moon to new moon in the new earth. Have you read that in Isaiah 66? Yeah, we're going to meet there from month to month is really what it says. We're going to meet from month to month and Sabbath to Sabbath. It's because the tree of life will have different fruit every month. And the tree of life I've had a lot of food from uh, mango trees the last couple of weeks. I've been in the Philippines, and the mangoes, it, we, they were in season, it, they were ripe, they were abundant, and they were not expensive. Uh, in fact, it was one of the cheaper things you could eat, and in view of options of what could be eaten in some places I was, it was one of the few things I could eat, and so I had a lot of mangoes. If I don't get mangoes, it's a little bit sad, but it's, but listen, but it's no tragedy, right? I don't need mangoes to live. The tree of life isn't like a mango tree. I mean that when Adam and Eve sinned, the way that they were executed was by removing access to the tree of life. Do you remember this back in Genesis? That they had to eat from the tree of life if they were going to live forever. And it's not like this. You eat once from the tree, and now you live forever. It never was like that. Even before there was a sin in the world, it wasn't like that, that you eat once and live forever. It was like this. You eat, and you live. You eat, and you live. You eat forever, and so you live forever. And if you remove the tree of life so you no longer can eat, then eventually you're no longer going to live. Because to live... Jesus is our tree of life. Jesus is a tree of life that has, you might say, been updated to allow for forgiveness. So that in the old tree of life, if you sin, you get no access. But in Jesus, the, who gave his life, gave his flesh for the life of the world, that is, he gave his flesh so he could give life to the world, and now I can come to Jesus, and we write, these things were written to us that we would not sin. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. So the tree of life that we have today, Jesus, our tree of life. Ellen White makes this illustration. You can find it in the 7a of the Bible Commentary. She calls the Bible our tree of life. 
But that isn't really a very different thing than what I'm saying right now. It really isn't. If I want, oh boy, a baby's coming. Well, it's not a baby. Oh, it is a baby. All right. Just the baby isn't in the stroller. All right. You got lost, Rachel? Do you mean on campus? Are you? Oh, now you say we. Are you including this little one that's with you? But I don't think that she deserves any credit for your being lost. I don't think. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're talking about sin and error, but mostly about Jesus right now. How Jesus gave his life for the sin of the world. Really, it says it, the verse we just read says he gave his flesh for the life of the world. Isn't that what it said? He gave his flesh. He's giving life to the world. And by partaking of Jesus, I have life for today. I didn't write this verse down in my notes, and I don't know the reference. So some Berean here will find it sometime today. But recently, let me preface it with some info. I've had people challenge me to show in the Bible where it's required that we have devotions. Uh, I, have any of you ever been challenged that way to prove in the Bible that it's required that we have devotions? I've been challenged that way. And uh, the thought that the challenger was giving is that, sure, to have devotions is, is a good idea. You can do it, but, but it's not required. There's nowhere it says it's required. I found a verse that requires it. It's in Deuteronomy when Jesus is speaking about when a king, if ever a king is chosen for Israel, God says that he should write out with his own hand a copy of the entire law, and the next verse says he should read in it every single day. And then it says, the next verse and a half, why he should read in it every single day. And then I started thinking that we are made unto God kings and priests. And so if anyone ever challenges me again to prove that they should have devotions, I'll say only if you want to be part of the royal priesthood. That's it. But for those, it's required to read every day. We ought to be. Which is just a, a way to try to illustrate this main idea that when we say Jesus or the Bible is our tree of life, it's a life that you, you get life from this by re continual, without ending, partaking. On Audioverse, I have a sermon called something like, What Was Accomplished by the Death of Christ? It's really taken almost entirely from an article by Ellen White by almost the same title. It was such an eye-opener to me, that article. What it says is that angels are saved by Calvary just like I am. I sinned and needed forgiveness. They never sinned and they never needed forgiveness. But I never want to sin again. And it's important also that they never sin. And the cross is the solution to the second problem as much as it is to the first problem. So angels, by looking at the cross, that's what keeps them from sinning. That's what will ever keep them from sinning. I remember hearing people say that Jesus would have died even for one sinner. 
I mean, he would have died even if only one person would accept his sacrifice. I think now that Jesus would have died even if zero persons would accept his sacrifice. I mean, it was essential for the saving of the angels, that this experiment here on earth is for their benefit too, and they honor him as well as we ought to for giving such a solution to the problems that face this planet. Jesus is our tree of life. Now we're going to look at three verses that are so interesting. Look at John chapter 8. It's over probably about a page and a half for you. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So I want you to imagine for a minute Miss Rachel Nelson back here, Dr. Nelson, that I tell her she should follow me to where I'm giving the lecture. And we start out at the chapel. And imagine that she does follow me for about 20 paces and then begins talking to someone. And I come over here to where I'm giving the lecture and then she stops talking and looks up, and I'm not anywhere around. Has she followed me? You know, she followed me for a bit, but then she stopped. I'm just trying to make a very obvious point, that when the Bible says that if you follow Jesus, you have the light of life, isn't the very word follow proof enough that it has to be continuous? Because if you don't follow continuously, then you don't follow. I mean, if you don't follow continuously, then you get as lost as if you didn't have a guide. So there it is. Jesus is the light of the world, and we want to follow him so we can have the light of life. Matthew 5, 14. We just read in John that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus says in John 5.14, you are the light of the world. Jesus, then me, the light of the world. That's the idea that's in these two verses. That is, Jesus is the light of the world and I am to follow him. And if I follow the light of the world, I won't walk in darkness, but I'll have the light of life. Didn't we read that in John 8? Jesus is the light of the world, and if we follow him, then we have the light of life. If I follow him, then I'm on this planet, and if I have the light of life, what am I according to Matthew 5? I am the light of the world. But that doesn't make any pride in me, because I understand John chapter 8, and that is Jesus is the light of the world, and it's because I'm following him that I have the light of life. This idea of being proud because you're the light of the world is so short-sighted. It's as if you don't get it, as if you don't understand that Jesus is the light of the world. When we talk, when Jesus says that you and I are the light of the world, 
he's saying something very simple. And that is that we ought to exhort one another daily. Well, it's called today. Lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. All he's really saying is that the things that God teaches you aren't just for you. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 1? That I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. This is what he said. I have to be careful. If I spend the whole time talking about Jesus, we won't spend any time talking about sin, which is just what I said we're going to do. But Paul said he was a debtor. And this idea of being a debtor is that, do I have any money in here at all? Let me just check and see. Recently, I've been poor. I do. This isn't for keeps, Mr. Hess, but it's for an illustration. All right? If I give this to Mr. Hess, and I say you can keep it, I didn't say that. But if I, sa if I said that, then Mr. Hess could use that money for whatever morally he ought to use it for, right? It's his money. But if I said, Mr. Hess, I'd like you to give that to Miss Ish. She's the blonde lady right there. But don't do it. I'm not saying that. All right? But if I said that, and then he pocketed it, that would be theft, right? Because it wasn't given to him for him. In effect, I make Mr. Hess a debtor by giving him money. How's, that's the same way banks make you debtors too, isn't that? That they give you money that's for them. And so by giving you money, they make you a debtor. But God does it in a different way. Like this, he gives me truth and he says it's for sharing. And if I don't share it, then I am I'm a, yeah, I'm a debtor, and if I don't share, I'm stealing. Jeremiah 23 uses those words. It says, you steal my words, everyone from his neighbor. Well, how do you steal God's words from your neighbor? It's not that you go over to sneak into the house and take his Bible. It's that God gave his words to you for your neighbor. And when you don't share your words with the neighbor, then your neighbor doesn't end up with the words. I'll go ahead and take it back before you get too distracted. Um, yes, before I forget. Once upon a time, the devil took Jesus into a high mountain, and he showed him the kingdoms of this world and the glory of them. That's in chapter 4 of Matthew. We were just reading in chapter 5. So in chapter 4, you have the glory of the world, and in chapter 5, you have the light of the world. And I'd like you to think a minute about the contrast, because it's a great way to introduce the sin of the world. That is, there is a light of the world, and it has everything to do with truth and righteousness. We ought to be the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. But what did Satan show to Jesus when he showed him the glory of the world? It wasn't righteousness, was it? He showed him what the world has to offer, what you might call the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. It's the things that are in the world. The devil showed him, if we're going to say it without metaphor, he showed him fancy buildings, fancy clothes, fancy camels, fancy, you know, he showed him the fancy things this world had to offer. And it showed it in such a way that it looked very attractive. That's the glory of the world. If we're going to talk one thing about the sin of the world, we're going to have to say 
that the world has a glory. Isn't it true that the world has a glory? Sometimes it's impressive. I've been in worldly edifices that were very impressive. Uh, I haven't been yet to the Taj Mahal, but I suppose someday I might be there, and I think it's going to be impressive. Uh, the world has a glory. But that glory is so much like the world. That is, it covers up the sin of the world. It's almost like the Pharisees. Jesus said they were like whited sepulchers. That was one time. The other time he said they're like sepulchers that didn't show up at all. That you walk right over top of them. You don't even know they're there. Do you remember when Jesus said that? Let's, before it's too late, talk some about the sin of the world. Turn to Matthew 13. Is that Matthew? Yeah, it is. Matthew 13 and verse 39. Talking about the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. I don't know if you ever thought about the fact that you could be devil seed. But the devil is a farmer, just like God is a farmer. And the devil does, in fact, sow in the church. Isn't that true? The devil sows in the church? The devil sows in the church. I have found in my life of ministry that there are individuals, you can have a local congregation with 50 people, and there could be two or three people in that congregation that all by themselves can use up almost all of the laboring force of the workers in the church. But if you're part of the laboring force, you shouldn't let it happen. No one has a right, other than God, to use up your God-given time for ministry. And the fact that the devil sows in the church is no evidence that we ought to devote our entire time to cultivating the tares. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. Just that beautiful thought in that middle of the verse, the world has an end. Do you see it in verse 39 that the world has an end? The harvest is the end of the world, and that's proof enough that the world has an end. So I'm thinking back now to the devil showing Jesus the glory of the world. What the devil fails to mention is that that glory has an, an end. This is the problem with the Taj Mahal. It's not going to last for a long time. It already lasted for quite a while, but in the big scheme of things, it's just a blip. The world has an end. If I talk about the sins of the world, because they are so dark, because they are so deep, because they are so horrible, I could get the picture that they are, as it were, overwhelming. But though the sins of the world are very deep, in terms of chronology, they're very short. They started recently, and they have an end. And isn't that a very encouraging thing about the sins of the world? Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're looking at verse 34. Jesus said unto him, 
Verily I say unto you, that this night before the cock crow, well, that is the, what I just said, but let me look at my notes again. Matthew 25, 34. Matthew 20, I'm in 26. There we go. 25, verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the other half of that same idea. The world has an end, but it also had a beginning. Now, which came first? The preparation of God's eternal kingdom or the world? You know, that was there first. From the foundation of the world, there's been a kingdom prepared for me, and the world is going to have an end. So when I talk about the world and its sin and its horribleness, this is one of the ways that I would answer an objection of that new atheism that Brother Wolberg mentioned, or was it, no, it wasn't, it was Andy M., that Andy mentioned this morning. The new atheist may paint the horrors of this planet in very vivid detail, but if he does, I'm just going to respond like this that if this is what was required so that someone could live forever, it, no matter how much pain, no matter how many people are lost and suffer, if you take all of the pain and death of all the billions of people and add it into one big pile of misery, death, sorrow, disaster, as big as you can for all of them, and compare that to the joy and pleasantness of just one eternal life of one human, it's worth it. In the same sense, I'm going to try to illustrate this for you. Uh, did you say you're from paradise? I was in paradise a couple years ago. Uh, there was at the Feather River Hospital. There was a doctor there at that time, now he lives in Tennessee, um, that volunteered to do a surgery on my throat. I had a throat, I still have a throat problem, but it was much worse before he did the surgery. He, as part of this process, not he, but one of his nurses had to put an IV in my arm. Now you should know that I dread IVs more than I dread surgeries. <laughs> Except that surgeries involve IVs. But that's the only reason the idea of having a big needle in my arm is for me, anyway, the thought of someone cutting open my chest cavity just isn't any worse than that. I mean, I'm not going to be awake for this, right? So, so, so there, there is a difference. But this lady at Feather River Hospital had some marvelous improvements over the first IV I got back in the uh, 70s. I don't think there was any IVs in between those two times. And um, the needle she used to deaden me was only about this long. It was like long plastic and just a little tiny prick thing. How can you be scared of a needle that's like half a centimeter long? Don't you think that's an improvement, like a wisdom on the part of someone? And so that, that was a great idea. And then the needle that they went to put into me was, it was almost flexible until the very end of the thing, and it just took away so much, not all, but it took away a lot of the fear. 
And then she gave me the IV, and then they put me out, and then I had the surgery. That was worth it. To have the improvement in my swallowing process was worth it, even with all that little bit of discomfort. But if you were to tell me now that I am going to get an IV put in me every five minutes for the rest of eternity so that I can swallow my food properly, I would say, let me die the death. <laughs> I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but it's worth it to have a little pain for a lot of benefit. We all can see the value in a little pain for a lot of benefit. And we could endure easily even 10 minutes of torturous pain for a several years of significant benefit. But that logic is what makes this world very bearable. The sins of the world have a beginning, they have an end, they have a finite number of sufferers, and when you add it all up, it's just a drop compared to the benefit that comes from this experiment. If the question is, why did God allow it? I will vote and say, he did wisely, he did well, it was worth it indeed, no matter how much suffering happens here. Do you follow that? Yeah. Isaiah 13 and verse 11. Isaiah 13 and verse 11. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. If I want to say something else about the sin of the world before we get into identifying sins of the world, it's that the sin of the world has consequences. Is God going to punish the sin of the world? He's going to punish for the sin of the world. When I was in Australia a couple, a few months ago, I guess it was now, six, I was talking to a treasurer there who works in the Fiji Islands. And he described for me something horrible, something that just hurts my soul. He described how there could be a congregation of Fijians that love the Bible, that do evangelism, they're on fire, but they can't be trusted with the offering. That it gets misappropriated. Then I will be speaking when I talk about the sins of the islands, about this one also. Thievery is punishable by death, even if you are an evangelist that loves Bible study. The sins of the world are going to be punished. You don't get out of it because your culture has, so I mentioned Fiji, but now if we come right here to North America, that's what we're doing in the next lecture, talking about the sins of North America and South America and of Asia. If I came to North American sins, yeah, sins of Asia, I'm going to talk about that. 
if we talk about the sins that are right close to home, we want to remember Isaiah. And what does it say about the sins? What's God going to do? He's going to punish. You don't get out of punishment on the basis of the prevalence of the sin. It's not... I feel like launching into the second series already because I sort of introduced it already. But, I, but I'm not going to. But the sins of the world have a beginning, they have an end, and they have a punishment connected with their end. First Corinthians 10 and verse 11. First Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Ooh. I'm quite certain this has to be 2 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Nope. Then it's probably 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11. Nope. Then I don't know where it is, but I'll tell you what it says. And if any of you know where it is, then maybe you can tell us where it is. It says in the middle of the verse, that the sorrow of the world worketh death. Is it 2 Corinthians 7? I was getting there eventually, wasn't I? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. You see, there are two types of mistakes I often make. It's the first and seconds, and it's the sevens and the elevens. And they... And this time I made them both at the same time, and it was just too much. Um, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be regretted. That's what I understand by that word repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Think for a minute to the nasty trick the devil tried to play on Steve Wolberg. When Steve was at his darkest point, when he had his infidel roommate advocating foolishness, when a little bit later, something later, he was pastoring here in California, and it was he said the edge. Isn't that the word he used, being at the edge? It reminds me of an experience that Uriah Smith had. Ellen White said he was like at a precipice. So here he was at the edge, and what the devil was saying to him in his darkness was the world. The world is the way out of darkness. But did you notice that when Brother Steve in Michigan adopted the skepticism it didn't resolve his darkness. And I remember he had darkness, and so he burned Ellen White's books. And now, did he have light and cheerfulness? The, really, it's a very, a very silly trick the devil tries to play on us about the world. That is, when he can lead us into an experience of discouragement and darkness and perplexity, and when we're at the very bottom, he suggests, he suggests as a solution the world. And when you're really desperate, you might just try something. You're going to try it, not because it looks so attractive, but because you're desperate.
but uh, is the world going to solve this deep darkness you have? I like the way he eloquently put the sayings of Satan. Satan saying it's going to be so easy, but then Satan would have to clarify that is you won't have these internal struggles. Because is living a worldly life easy? The sorrow of the world worketh death. The truth is, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And this idea that the, of, because Christianity is hard, go with the world, is just the most hollow, silly thing the devil ever said. We would never fall for it if we weren't blinded in dense darkness already. What have we said about the world? We've said that it has an end, that it has a beginning, that the sins of the world are going to be punished. And now, even before they're punished, this, the sorrow of the world is a horrible thing, that there is no peace. So if we're going to talk about the world's sin, it's a short-lived, miserable experience. And review what we know about Jesus Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the, he takes away the short-term miserable experience. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5.10. I think I have the first correct this time, but I'll hurry there and look. It is right. One more thought about the sins of the world. We need to start in verse 9 to get a whole sentence. I wrote unto you in a letter not to company with fornicators. I feel like preaching about verse 9. I mean, we live in a fornicating age. We live in a time when people are indulging the lust of their flesh at the expense of the most weighty things. I had an extremely distressing phone call a few months ago from a lady in New York. She was a Hindu. I talked to her this week also. I think she still is a Hindu. I hope someday she'll be an Adventist. But if she does, it would be the most amazing type of miracle. Because this Hindu lady married an Adventist. Who should be faulted in that, the lady or the man? Shouldn't it be the man that's faulted in that scenario? This man, an Adventist, married a Hindu lady. Then, after some time, he developed an affection for a Seventh-day Adventist girl. And then he suddenly discovered where the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he made this his grounds for divorce. Is that grounds for divorce? And you know the distressing phone call was from that Hindu lady. She had heard from someone there in her church that maybe I could help. And she called me to ask me to talk to her husband and let him know that what he's doing is wrong. Call him the slew of despond. Do you know what was heaped into the slew of despond? Do you remember 
uh, what was heaped in there was a, almost an infinite volume of counsels and good advice and truth and that is there is there is a way that seems right unto a man and even the middle of it could be the way of death. Uh, he's gone. Do you see why I say it would be a very hard thing for her to ever become a Seventh-day Adventist? Very, very hard thing for her. If I, I've never met the man and don't know what he looks like, but if I found out that one of you were he, and you wanted to sit with me at lunch, I would not sit with you. I won't do it. That's what it says in verse 9. It says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. I am not going to sit down with you. I'm thinking of Adventist history. Of, excuse, I said Adventist history. It's Christian history. It, long before Adventism, back in the 4th century, there were Celtic Christians that were trying to convert the pagan Saxons. And those Celtic Christians would eat with the Saxons, and they, would, they were their servants in most cases, and they would associate with them and were trying to save them. But when the Saxons became Catholic Christians, then many of the Celts stopped eating with them. They said, when you were pagan, we could eat with you. But now that you claim to be a Christian, we will not. It's because of what's right here. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must you needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or a drunkard or an extort, did I skip a line? A fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer. We don't know that word railer anymore, but we sure know what it's like. That's someone who's always talking about other people. Someone who uh, you'd say a malicious gossiper. Or a railer or I lost myself when I said that. What verse was I in? or a drunkard or an extortioner, but such a one know not to eat. What is Paul saying about the world? He's saying that it's perfectly legitimate to associate with sinners in the world. It's perfectly legitimate because the only way to get out of that is to get out of the world. I can eat with sinners in the world because I'm trying to save the sinners in the world. But if a man is called a brother, I don't want to confuse the sinners by eating with him. They're going to think that, oh, Christians are just the same as sinners when we really shouldn't be the same at all. So when a man becomes a brother, if now he continues to live in that sinful way, the world needs to see that we don't acknowledge him as being one of us. But I'm talking about the sin of the world, and so it's really the more pleasant part of that verse that I'm talking about. And that is, the world is deep and dark, and it has an end, and it's suffering even now. But I am not commanded by God to disassociate from it. I'm not to love the world. I'm not to love the things that are in the world. 
but I can surely love the people who are suffering in the world. I can associate with them and eat with them, even with ones that are idolaters and fornicators and covetous. How in the world could they be anything else while they're in the world? Aren't they, shouldn't I expect that of them? That's about where they have to be. And I, yeah, you understand the idea. We can associate with the world. You can. Repented? Oh, yes. Yes. In fact, this is the logic of 2 Corinthians, the first two chapters. What Paul says is you need to disfellowship this wicked man, but once he's disfellowshipped, that is sufficient punishment for him. Now confirm your love toward him. This is it. When Jesus said, after start with one, then take elders, then show it to the church, then treat him as a publican, that doesn't mean now treat him as a, uh, uh, what's the word, a, uh, yeah, you're not going to leave him at arm's length. Once he's been disassociated, he's no longer a member, we can get as close to him as if he was in the world. I wish my, I wish my father, for example, had been able to or had chosen to confess that he was addicted to tobacco. I wish he had because he was a member of the Adventist church. In fact, his membership was transferred quite a number of times when we moved. He was a member of a, many Adventist churches. But if ever he had been able to expose himself, he could have been disfellowshipped. And he, then there would have been no need to put on a charade or a facade. He could have been out in the open. Yeah, I think this is exactly what Paul means when he says, a man who is called a brother. And I would go and clarify what you didn't ask, which I thought you were asking. And that is when a man in the church is covetous and then he repents of his covetous ways and he is rebaptized. I'm going to eat with him. There isn't a, uh, there isn't an eternal stigma to sin that is not overridden by the power of forgiveness. And it is legitimate for the church to refellowship a man who has been disfellowshipped. When we say disfellowship today, we sort of mean off the books. And that what we mean when we say disfellowship. But do you see what disfellowship looks like in the passage we just read in Corinthians? Disfellowship looks very much like disfellowship. I mean, isn't that what it looks like? And uh, can the church refellowship a man? It can refellowship a man. Now, I've used up my entire time and used up two-thirds of my data. And, um, and this is so normal for what I have to say. So I'm going to review and just get started with the next period when the next period comes. We're going to be talking about the sins of North America and South America and Asia, and then later about the sins of Europe and the islands and Australia and Africa. We're going to be talking about the sins of the various regions of the world. But we don't ever want to forget that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, including the sins of North America and South America and of Asia, of Europe and of Africa and of Australia and the islands. 
Jesus is the one who takes them away. And they are going to go away. They have a beginning and they have an end. They have punishment at the end and why they're miserable even in the meantime. And even if there's a great deal of them and if the suffering in this world is immense, it doesn't compare well to the glory of even one eternal life. Yet the way we get eternal life is by eating from the tree of life. And do we have a tree of life? We do. Jesus is our tree of life. And for practical purposes, since we can't see him, the Bible is our tree of life. It's the words of Jesus to us. Is it sufficient to partake of it one day? To partake of it one day is the way to live one day. But if we're going to live forever, we're going to have to partake forever. And it's by that continuous partaking that we have continuous life. That's what Jesus did. He's given his flesh for the life of the world. And that's what we want, life. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I'm so thankful to you that you have restored to us the life of the world, that you've given us a tree of life that has no flaming sword to guard it. And I'm so sorry that we have been inclined to look with over, over much favor on a miserable, short-lived worldliness. Please show us how dark it is and how able you are to save us. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.